Welcome to the Calvary Lake Ozark Message Podcast. Wherever you are tuning in from today, we hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. If you'd like more information about Calvary Lake Ozark, visit calvarylakeozark.com. Well, good morning. How are you guys doing? Just wanted to say thank you. Yeah, up, everybody upstairs in the... Uh, It's that kind of morning. <laughs> Connie is about to spit coffee on the first three rows right here. I'm so sorry. So if you feel that, that's not special effects. Give it up for Andy. Look at this. You need an Andy in your life, okay? If you don't have an Andy. <laughs> I don't trust it anymore. <laughs> you will be known by your works. And your works are dead. Oh, that ain't, what's that going to do? <laughs> Give it to the pastor. Anybody else have anything else for me? <laughs> Amen, brother. Amen. Dude. To see something on the stage? Hey, give that to the pastor. It's the bass player's chords. <laughs> so set that back there. I appreciate it. It could have been something important. It could have been something important. I thought, what's this? I got a letter to read. What are we doing here this morning? What are we <laughs> I already have ADHD, and it's already been a morning. (laughs) Welcome to the people upstairs. Thank you so much for still joining us, even though, see, that's going to drive me nuts, too. My goodness. Thank you for joining us. It is a packed house, and I love that. Will was asking me, Will was running sound. He goes, do you get nervous when a lot of people are here? I said, I wouldn't say that. I said, you know, I I start shaking. I feel like I'm going to throw up. (laughs) Cold sweat. I wouldn't say nervous, though. No, I'm glad that you guys are here. Um, We are walking through our sermon series talking about final thoughts, the final thoughts of Jesus. This is the last teaching block of Jesus before the trial, before the cross, before the empty grave, before the end of the gospel that we just celebrated Easter just a couple weeks ago. And so, uh, and I'll, I'll be honest, I'm excited. I'm excited to jump into that, but there's a reason that Matthew included this teaching block. And so, uh, even though it, it can get kind of thick, it can get a little like uh, uh, studious at times. It's fruitful, and and it is profitable for us to walk through this and to dig into that and to chew on and marinate in some of these words. And so we're in Matthew 24, and we're going to do something a little different. Um, we're going to read uh, starting in 24, and we're going to read into 25, because what we have to understand is the numbers, the chapter divisions, and the verse things; those aren't divine. Those were added 1,500 years later after Scripture was written. So it wasn't like John was sitting there thinking, John 3.16, they're going to love this. No, those were added later, which is kind of fun because when you think about it, if you remember the story when Jesus walks into the synagogue and they hand him the scroll of Isaiah, which is 66 books long, chapters long, they hand him the scroll of Isaiah with no chapter divisions, with no verse divisions, he perfectly opens it up to the prophecy that it was talking about him, and he reads it. Kind of shows how well he knew scripture. And I know what you're thinking, well, he's God, of course. (laughs) And that is true, too. But Philippians says that he did not grasp that. He didn't play the God card, that he was 100% man as well. And so, what if we took out all the chapter divisions and all the verse divisions, would we be able to find our favorite verses? 
And the other thing that's uh, to speak into that just a little bit is those divisions sometimes will uh, cause a bad thing in the sense of it's easier to take verses out of context. You're like, oh, the, the, it stops right here, so that must be the end of the thought. And it's like, actually not. Some of those chapter divisions and verse divisions actually are in really bad spots. You know, uh, think of like Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, can I fly? No, because if you take that verse out of context, but in the context, the verses before and after it are talking about something totally different. And so understand where those are at. And so here in Matthew, uh, if it was me... 1,500 years ago, I would have moved 25 to start a little sooner. But we're going to start in verse uh, chapter 24, starting in verse 45. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, Who then is the faithful, wise servant, whom his master has set over his household, to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant, whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions." But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, and he begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, and the master of that servant will come on a day he does not expect him, and in an hour he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces. Dang, we're getting real here. And put him with the hypocrites, and in that place there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out and to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. In Matthew 24, it's the Olivet Discourse, because he's on the Mount of Olives. And, and we have been studying, and Jesus has been talking about his return as it relates to Israel. That remnant of Israel that will be living through that seven-year period of tribulation. And, he's been, and he told him, like, like the fig tree, you can look and you can understand that spring's coming, summer's on its way, because the fig tree's bearing you know, buds and leaves. You know you can look at things to expect. But now Jesus kind of changes the tune, like the atmosphere of what he's talking about changes. Because he, he's not talking about external things. We already talked about that, where you know, that remnant of Israel will be in Basra, and there's a place protected that God has uh, set up for them in that last three and a half years. And he kind of brings a close to that tribulation kind of period. But now he, he changes kind of the focus of what he's talking about. Still in relation to his return, but now he's asking, who's a faithful and wise servant? And so again, the focus is a little bit different. Now he's discussing as it relates to another group, which we know now, looking back, he's talking about the church, but there's still some mystery involved in it because the church hasn't started yet. But he knows that there will be people waiting for his return. 
And here's, I want to speak into that a little bit. And obviously, the chronology of the Bible, we, we understand that this is right before, he's in his last week of life. And then after he dies on the cross, resurrected, there's going to be a period of 40 days that he appears to the disciples and other people. And then there'll be a 10-day period and then the day of Pentecost. And that's when the Holy Spirit comes to uh, the disciples up in the upper room. And so now Jesus is focusing, instead of looking at external signs, he focuses on inward attitudes of these servants. And so he says, who then is this faithful, wise servant whom his master has set over his household? And, and that kind of verbiage is, is commonly used in the New Testament about the church. It's about us. So who are these wise, faithful servants that are put over a household? I think this is a kind of a, a correlation to us, the church, and leadership. And so what is that relationship between us, congregation, pastoral leading? What does that look like? You know, because what I, I want to guard carefully, because there's uh, some churches in the world that I think that's a very unhealthy relationship. Uh, and I think one of the ways it can become unhealthy is when a congregation will put their pastor on a pedestal. And so I please, I beg of you, do not put me on a pedestal whatsoever. I'm a sinner, just like you. I'm broken, just like you. I have things that I'm struggling and dealing with, and, and if you would have been in my uh, minivan this weekend with a... All the kids and somebody in front of me that just wants to drive the speed limits, you would see my lack of patience. And as my wife has the country music on repeat, <laughs> causes wrecks, okay, guys? It causes wrecks. I'm just like you guys. I'm real. I'm smack dab in the middle of my own sanctification. There's times that I wander away from the grace and the mercy of Christ. I look in the mirror and think, what the heck am I doing? Just like you. And so a lot of people sometimes will pedestal their pastors in the moment that they, there's any kind of sin or any, anything of a, a, oh, they're human, they fall away. Now, I'm not saying I just get away with any sin whatsoever. We'll mention that in a minute. And I think the other key thing is not pedestaling the pastors, but also for pastors not to lord over the authority that have been given to them in leading congregations. And that can happen as well. And so what does the relationship look like? I'm going to take a verse out of Ephesians 5.21. Paul's talking about Christ and the church, and he uses the analogy of a husband and a wife, but I love it. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So what is the relationship that a, a church congregation and its leadership should have? That's why I love the uh, shepherd-sheep kind of analogy. Submit to one another. That there are times that, as a shepherd, we lay down our life for the sheep and the well-being of the sheep, but there is also times that the sheep need to be an encouragement to the shepherd. You know, Pastor Sean has been going through some stuff with his dad, and he had to be up in St. Joe to be with him while he was in the hospital, and had the opportunity to teach Elevate and uh, try to be a youth pastor for one night. And thank the Lord we have Sean. That's all I'm going to say. But I told him, you know, we, we let him know what was going on. And I said, this is an opportunity for you guys as, as his sheep 
to encourage him now. And they all whip out their phones and they blow up his phone right there at like 7.30 at night. He's like, did you say, did you say something? Because my phone just went crazy. And I said, yeah, I told them it's an opportunity for them to encourage you. And so we need that mutual submission, respect. Why? Because of Christ. Not because of who I am and who you, no, who we are in Christ. That's where this should be. And in pastoral ministry, it's something I take real serious. Kind of like when a young couple wants to come and get married, I do premarital counseling. Me and my wife were saved in premarital counseling. We highly recommend premarital counseling. So anybody that gets married uh, here or by one of us pastors, you have to do premarital. And I always tell the young couple, because they're just ooey-gooey in love, like, like fake movie, romantic, rom-com, like in love. Like, you guys haven't even farted around each other yet. Like, come on. <laughs> like, just wait, Okay. And I tell them, they'll be like, oh, I just love him. Isn't he so good looking? It's like, he's a seven at best, okay? Like, <laughs> calm it down, girl. And then he's just smitten, and she can just do whatever, and he's just melting. Oh, honey, we'll do whatever. And I'm like, you haven't told her no yet, have you? You haven't told her no yet. She's just getting her way. I see how it is. But I'll tell them, guys, if I can talk you out of getting married, I should. Because if I can, and I'm not that smart, if I can talk you out of it, I should. Because the world is going to throw at you so much more that's harder than what I could bring up. And if I can talk you out of it, the world is going to do it real quick. And just give it a little bit of time and it'll happen every time. You'll abandon your covenant and your commitment to your wife or to your husband. So if I can talk you out of it, I should. It's the same conversation I have if a person comes to me and says, I, I, think, uh, I think the Lord's leading me to get into ministry. Love that conversation. Love that conversation. But if I can talk you out of it, I should, because there's nothing more that grieves me when we see pastors or ministry leaders torpedo their lives, because every time, the sheep are affected. It's one of the things I told Cliff when I came. We were talking about his, his departure and just kind of what he was walking through, and I said, praise the Lord that you stepped out of ministry and you didn't torpedo your life. That he's no longer the senior pastor, not because of something immoral or unethical, because he was stepping into another ministry. So many, so many pastors never retire as pastors. It's actually a very small percentage. And the stresses of it cause them to torpedo their lives. And, and the church is always affected by that. I have family members that will never walk foot in here. They know what I do. It's not a hidden thing. Because they went to a church where a pastor torpedoed his life. And he thought and walked away and chose something horrible. And so if I can talk young people or anybody out of ministry, I should. Because the risk is very high. I hold, I know I will answer for how I lead my life. And as you will, I know I will answer how I lead my family. And I also believe I will answer for how I lead his church. That he is entrusted to me. And I will have to give an account for us here at Calvary Lake Ozark. And so ministry is a very serious thing for me, um, but with a deep sense of joy, I absolutely, absolutely love what I get to do. I mean, to wake up every morning at noon <laughs> and serve the Lord that one day a week yeah. is phenomenal. The staff hate when I say that joke. I said, well, if they really believe us, let them, and if they don't, they'll pray for us, so it's okay. <laughs> I absolutely, with a deep sense of joy, love 
what I get to do and walk along you good people and walk in life together. But my heart for ministry, I wanna protect the flock. I think every pastor should protect the flock. I think every pastor should feed the flock, feed the word of God. You don't need my opinions, you need the word of God. And lastly, do not neglect the flock. And, and there's times that we can. Why? Because we're human, we're broken. I'll miss a phone call. I'll miss an opportunity to come and pray with you. I'll miss something. Oh, did you know John's having surgery? Da, da, da. Oh, why didn't Pastor Nick call me? Pastor Nick didn't know. And there's nothing more frustrating than sitting in staff meeting or a board meeting and somebody says, oh yeah, Bob had surgery, had half his body taken out. We just had coffee two days ago. He didn't tell me nothing. We, we want to be praying with and for you guys. But we only know what we know, and we don't know what we don't know. So if you don't tell us, I have no idea. And so sometimes we can be under that expectation of, oh, the pastor should do this. Sometimes I just don't know. And other times, I'm broken and I fail. I used to tell my students, and I'll tell you guys, I, I will fail you at some point. Just give it time. <laughs> I know me. I'll miss a phone call. I'll miss an opportunity. I'll do something. I'll say something. <laughs> it's already happened this morning. A couple of you can't even believe he said that. <laughs> but I want to mutually submit to one another out of reverence for Christ and know that we, we as a staff, we want to walk with you. And the only invitation that we ask is just invite us a part of your life and how we can be a part of that. Let us know. But the master sets this servant over his household to give food at the proper time. So there's a little bit of that feed the flock type mentality. But look at verse 46. Blessed is that servant who his master will find so doing when he comes. See, the danger is that master set his servant in charge, and the servant's like, you know what? He hasn't came back yet. He's never coming back, or I got plenty of time. Kind of like when I was a kid, my mom would say, after work, I'll be home, and you better have your chores done. He ain't coming home for a good hot minute. I got movies to watch, I got girls to call, I got things to do. Mom doesn't know the busy schedule I keep on the summer. I ain't got time for the chores that she had lined out for me. And then four o'clock would hit and she needs, she'd be getting home in about a half hour. That was my chore time. And I'm, I'm telling you, I, I, I could do four hours of chores in 30 minutes. It was good. But then there was other times that mom got home early. And for some reason, she always wanted to end up, like, disciplining me when those things happened. I just didn't understand. I tried to tell her everything that I was doing that day, trying to show her the agenda. I'm busy. But I wasn't doing what she expected to find and to see in me. And so this servant becomes this wicked servant because listen to what he says in his own heart. My master is delayed. The most dangerous lie that I think Satan can throw at us is not there is no God. Demons believe that there's a God and that he's one. Creation speaks to intelligence. I can argue the existence of a monotheistic God and I haven't even opened up the Bible. Reason, logic, science that we have. Creation speaks that there is a God. Another lie that sometimes Satan throws at us, but I don't think it's the biggest one, is that there's no hell. That we all just... Because we're human, we live, we die, and we all get to go to heaven because that's who God is. 
No, there absolutely is a hell. And there's something innate in us to want to see justice happen, right? I mean, how many times do the, the number one argument I have with my kids trying to settle their arguments is one kid's doing something and the other one's ticked off because they're getting away with it. I had a nickel every time I heard that. Well, they just always get away with it. And it's like, you all are getting away with a whole lot. Or maybe it's time for me to bring the hammer a little bit more. Maybe be a little more uh, disciplined here. We have in us that innate need to want to see justice when we see evil. But I think the greatest, most dangerous lie of Satan, there's no hurry. No hurry. Especially for us that are younger. Talk to somebody that's a little more uh, seasoned. Is that the word we're using? Mature, thank you. Mature, mature. I'm not allowed to say old anymore. Because a lot of times we live our life like we got all the time in the world, the Rolling Stones. Time is on our side. Yes, it is. And that's how we live our life. We don't really need to get serious about this Jesus thing because I'm only 37. I got plenty of time. Once I start getting old, once I see the finish line of life getting a little closer, then I'll get serious about Jesus. It doesn't matter if you're eight or 108. If you have a pulse, your life matters. And how you live your life right now, today, this week, it matters. And if we always have that mentality of, ah, there's no hurry, I really don't need to get serious, or one day I'll start reading my Bible, one day I'll join a life group, one day I'll start praying, one day, yeah, I might serve one day, I'll I'll help. There's a lot of one days right there. And that's, I think, the greatest lie, is Satan just telling us, don't rush, there's no hurry. Don't act like there's something expecting big to happen at any moment. Just keep living life like it's always going to be this way and nothing's ever going to change. That's the greatest lie. Because even though he can't get us maybe to denounce the existence of God or his grace, he definitely doesn't want us to make an impact. He definitely doesn't want us to live every day to the fullest. He definitely doesn't want us to live out Philippians, to live as Christ and to die as gain. No. Just sit back and relax. You guys are working hard. Take that weekend off. Watch the game. Relax, go on that vacation. Not that any of those things are bad. But when we allow anything to distract us from what we are called to be as followers of Jesus, whatever gets us to distract away from that imminent return that Christ could come back at any point. The master is delayed, but he's gonna show up one day. And is he gonna find us doing the last thing that Jesus called us to do? So verse 46, blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. I want Jesus to find us individually. I want him to find us as a church doing the last thing that he called us to do. So how do we be successful in ministry? What does that look like? Are you fruitful? Are you faithful and are you fulfilling? So are you faithful in your life? Are you walking with the Lord? Are you in his word? Are you praying? Are you, do you have those spiritual disciplines that are moving you along in your journey, in your walk with Christ? Are you being faithful, trusting, obedient to Jesus? Are you fruitful in your life? Do people look at you and do they see the fruits of the spirit? Does somebody look at us and see, you know, there is something about them. They're, and the only way they're gonna put it is they're always in a good mood or they're just always happy. No, we have the fruit of the spirit. 
that there is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I think that's all of them. There's nine, and you need them all. Galatians 5. But do people look at our lives? Are we, are we being fruitful in our lives to see that? And are we fulfilling what God has called us to do? Because what I'm prone to do is this. Hey, this is God giving me, this is what I have for you, Nick. And I take that. And on my journey, ooh, I like this. Ooh, I like this. Ooh, I like this. And I start doing all the other things that God did not call me to do. And now I'm burdened, I'm tired, I'm wore out. Why? Because I'm doing everything that God didn't tell me to do. And I'm neglecting the very thing that he called me to do. And there's all kinds of distractions. And there's all kinds of things that are pushing, saying, hey, don't worry about, you got plenty of time. You can work on that thing that God told you to do later. Let's focus on this. No. If Christ returned today, would he find you doing the last thing that he called you to do as a follower of him? And then Jesus moves on and he gives us another parable, moving away from a faithful, obedient servant now to a wise and uh, foolish virgins going to a wedding, probably thinking like, what's this about? A Jewish wedding was like the pinnacle of your life. If we were Jewish in this ancient Near Eastern culture, your wedding was pretty much the pinnacle of your life. And hopefully, a wedding still is like the pinnacle of our life, right? It's not like, ah, it was a Tuesday, then we went to Burger King. Like, hopefully, that was a very big, monumental day in your life. Hopefully. In a Jewish culture, it would last for seven days. It'd be all week of a party. I'm just going to be honest. Two hours into my wedding day, I was done. And I hadn't even made it to the church yet. All the guys stayed at our house. I had to put on a tuxedo. I was done with that real quick. Because I was standing up there with the pastor and Ashley was going to walk down the aisle, and we were going to come out like of a side door, and we were behind in that little room, and I was getting a little nervous, you know, obviously. And I said, hey, I'll, I'll pay you extra if you'll go out there and just say, hey, has anybody seen Nick? Because <laughs> I was done. I thought it would be hilarious. I said, right when they gasp, I'll walk out. He wouldn't do it, so. But it was a long seven-day celebration, and some of the ladies in here are like, oh, that would be awesome. Some of you guys are like, shut up, pastor. You're talking too long about that. <laughs> and what would happen is the bridegroom would leave and he would go. When it was ready, he would go to get his bride. And you knew the day that a wedding was going to happen, but you didn't know when. Because they, seven days. There's a lot of preparation that goes into that. And so they're going to wait until everything is ready. Then he's going to go get his bride. And so if you were invited to the wedding, you just had to be ready that day. All day. Wearing your wedding outfits. That sounds awesome. And then once the bridegroom would go and leave and get his bride and they would be heading back, that's when that call came out saying, hey, the bridegroom's here, wake up and let's go. And so these 10 ladies were most likely in the wedding party or invited to it in some degree and they just needed to be ready at any time of that day. And some of them had oil and extra oil in their lamps so that no matter what happened, we're ready, we're prepared. And then there was two of the 10, there was five foolish that, you know, we don't really need to, we were at a wedding last month, he, we were there by noon, we had plenty of oil, and so it's perfectly fine. And I kind of live my life like that when it comes to the gas tank of my car. <laughs> that little button that tells you how many miles you have till empty is a tool of the devil, 
for me because I know how long everything is. It's like, oh, three miles? I got plenty of time here. And so they thought, oh, we got enough oil. We'll be fine. And they weren't prepared. They weren't expecting a delay. And so they all fall asleep. Then the call comes. They wake up, and they know we're without oil, and we can't see. We need. They were foolish. They weren't prepared. Our God is a God of preparation. You know, just to smack some pastors again because it's kind of fun. I hear this verse that's used out of context. You know the one where Jesus says, hey, uh, when you get arrested, you'll be taken before courts and governors and don't worry about what you're gonna say and the Holy Spirit will give you the words to speak. Some pastors use that as they're preaching. They don't prepare whatsoever. So they really only work one day a week. But there's no prep to their sermons and they just walk up and we're just gonna let the Holy Spirit speak. I think God is a God of preparation where we study his word, we draw out how we're gonna apply this word to our lives. God is a God of preparation. Even looking at Jesus, he, was, he lived and prepared for ministry for 30 years for a three-year ministry. Or most of us, we go to Bible college or seminary for three years and then hopefully get 30 years of ministry out of that. But we need to be prepared. Because a lot of times we can be like that wicked servant or we can be like those foolish witnesses that are the, uh, the, serv- or the, the virgins there that don't have oil. Ah, the master's delayed. It, they don't expect it. And so they just live life as normal until we get caught off guard. And a lot of times, I tell the staff this a lot, we wanna be proactive in the things of the church. We don't wanna just be reactive. This is happening, this is happening, because when I'm reactive, I don't have a whole lot of wisdom to make good decisions if I'm reactive. But if we're being proactive, so one of the things that we're being proactive on is kind of packed this morning, huh? We're proactively thinking through how do we help that situation? What do we do? We're praying about that, we're making decisions on that. You'll hear it once there's something to be announced. But we wanna be proactive on that. We don't wanna not make a decision and just all of a sudden, what do we do? There's not enough seats for as many people that are here. When we just react, that's not a way to do ministry. We wanna be proactive and I think the same thing for our lives. Because crisis and opportunity will never give you a heads up. They're not gonna call and say, hey, flat tire on your way to work. Then you know to leave 10 minutes early so you have time to change a tire, no. Or an opportunity. And it's not always negative things. Sometimes it's really good things that the Lord has for you, but we're so reactive to life, we're not being proactive to what God has for us. See, life wasn't meant to happen to us, but through us. And a lot of us, we are prone to lose our urgency, our sense of urgency and expectation that we need to be all the more diligent to be ready and prepared. Why? Because anything could happen. Fully as God could return Christ can return, or he just wants to move in and through us. But if we're not prepared, if we're not in his word, if we don't have the spiritual disciplines to make us a good soldier, why is he gonna move and work through us? There was an old lady that she got pulled over by a police officer. And as he's walking up, she rolls down her window and says, officer, I just want you to know I have a loaded 45 right next to me here in the car. And he says, thank you, ma'am, for letting me know that. And she said, I also have a nine millimeter in the glove box. He says, okay. And she says, I also have a loaded AR in the trunk. <laughs> and he says, ma'am, what are you afraid of? She said, absolutely nothing. 
because she's prepped. She's ready. Anything could come her way, and she'll be your huckleberry. And so many of us are living lives the opposite, that anything could happen. And that's some of the biggest ways that I've had disruptions or Satan try to attack my life are the things that I wasn't expecting. And some of the greatest blessings and moments of ministry in my life is the exact same that God is doing in and through me. I never expected whatsoever. But if I'm not living life in a way that's ready for that, then how could I ever be used by God? And however, however, how can I ever be ready to defend myself against the schemes of Satan? And so what do we learn from these uh, 10 ladies going to a wedding? So oil in a lamp, oil in, uh, in the Old Testament was always kind of a symbol of the Holy Spirit. If you remember when David was anointed by Samuel to be king, right after that, the Holy Spirit came upon him. And so oil is always a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Um, and actually, uh, there's some denominations, and, and I lean to it. I carry a little flask of oil with me. Because James says that if you are sick, or if you need prayer, call the elders of the church together, and they will anoint you with oil and pray for you. And so I've been to hospital visits, I've been to, or big um, opportunities that somebody has, and they want us to come and pray over them, and we will just anoint them with oil. We don't pour the whole thing, just a little dab on our finger. Uh, if you were here when I, had, uh, when I was ordained by Cliff my first Sunday, my senior pastor came, and they came up and they prayed over me, and it kind of got a laugh, but I don't think people knew what happened. He put his hand on my head, which with this big bald head, I could understand, right? He was anointing me with oil. He was anointing me for the position here. And so oil has always been a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Just like bread and juice is a symbol of communion, the water and baptism is just symbolism. It, it's just water. Nothing this is just olive oil. I didn't pray over it. didn't do any hokey pokey, shaky dancey, nothing like that. Just oil. It's just symbolism. But oil has always been a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And what's fun is the word of God has always had an analogy of light. See how they two work together and they're connected. But if you look at some of the things of oil and then think of the uh, work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, like oil decreases friction. I learned that lesson the hard way because my little rust bucket of a car that dripped oil, I needed to put more oil in, but I didn't know that. And it ran out of oil and the friction of my motor increased to the point of, I no longer have a working motor. The Holy Spirit does the same thing for us as the church because we're all broken. We're all messed up. We're all gonna say things at times that are gonna tick off somebody, frustrate somebody, myself included. We're gonna have jealousy and pride and, and coveting and our egos are gonna get in the way and we're gonna flare up. But oil, the presence of the Holy Spirit, is to decrease that friction. That's what Paul says, we need to have unity in the Spirit. That even though I'm gonna say something or do something or you're gonna say something or do something, we tick each other off, it's my brother and sister in Christ and we're a unity in the Spirit and so, I need to forgive, and there's times I need to be forgiven because I want unity in the spirit. Also, oil heals, and it brings restoration. It's one of the things that uh, they used in this culture to treat wounds and different skin diseases. They used oil. Obviously, oil brings light if it's burned in the lamp. It's what we're talking about here. 
Oil provides warmth, right? If it's burned as fuel. My wife in the winter likes to keep our bedroom at a very nice 47 degrees. <laughs> she even opens up the window to allow the snow to come in. It's beautiful. It's really nice. And you think I'm joking, and we have two fans on at the same time. I literally get pneumonia and hypothermia every night I go to bed. And then she'll be like, oh, we'll get the down comforter out. Yeah, it's going to take me down into the grave. But that's one, of the, that's one of the titles of the Holy Spirit, of his ministry. He's the comforter. And so when I'm in that freezing bedroom and I have nine comforters on me, it's like, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. He's our comforter. <laughs> He's our comforter. And so that's where you see the light and the warmth is that grace and truth that we have in the Holy Spirit. Also, oil is used to polish. Obviously, need that a little bit. But oil polishes and it takes the grime and it smooths out rough edges. And look at us. (laughs) Some of us are pretty rough. And we need to polish up a little bit. We need to smooth out some rough edges in our life. We need the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Individually in our life, we need the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our church because we need to be ready. And so the question is, is there oil in your vessel? See, Paul says that we're all a vessel in God's hands to be used by him. But are we full? Are we, or is our lamp just running on empty, kind of like how I like to run my car? Because the current price is you can't fill that bad boy up, right? But are we foolish or are we wise? Are we living life burning out, running on empty, or Ephesians 5.18 says, be filled with the Spirit. And what that means is not just a one-time thing that happens at salvation, at conversion, when we submit and surrender our life to Christ, we are full of the Holy Spirit, but also we need a continual filling of the Holy Spirit in our life, just like my old rust bucket that I bought when I was 18 years old. It leaked oil, it burned oil, it did all kinds of stuff to oil except keep it in the car. So I had to continually fill it with oil. And we need that same work in our own lives, that we should be burning oil. We should be burning the Holy Spirit working in and through us, and we need that fresh filling because that means we're being used by the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't get stagnant or stale, but we get a fresh feeling because we're always being used by God in this. We need that to be that continual filling. And that's that internal readiness, preparedness in our lives. Not external things, not looking at the fig tree and is it budding or not. We don't need to look outside. We need to be ready here. Because the world should be looking at us, our internal attitudes, to see an imminent, imminent expectation of something. They should be looking and saying, like, you're, you just come across, like, you're ready for something big to happen. Like, you're working and moving. Your everyday normal life has a very singular focus to it. What's that about? His name's Jesus. But when the world looks at us, are they seeing anything different? Because what's happening a lot in churches is we're looking at signs around us. We as the church do not need to be looking at signs of the times and the signs of the world, but we're called to be a sign to the world. They need to be looking at us and seeing there's something distinct. There's something that you're getting ready for. Again, that's Jesus. But does the world see anything different in us? Are we distinct to the world? Are we just mirroring the world around us? Does the broken, lost world that we are 
to be impacting? Do they look at us as the church, as followers of Jesus, and do they see anything different, or do they just see, hey, you look just like me. Why, why do I need to come to church? You look just like me. Why do I need to read the Bible? You act just like me. Why do I need the Holy Spirit? Or do they see something different in us? They should. The world saw something different in Jesus, and we're called to be little Christs. That's what Christian means. But the problem, I think, is in the name of tolerance, acceptance, relativity, maybe even fear, so many of us have darkened our lamps down. We're called to be that bright, shining light, but we don't want to be standing out into the world, so we turn our lamp really down so we don't stand out. We don't want to offend anybody. We don't want to, nope. We want just enough to be called a Christian, but not enough to be one of those Christians, right? We don't want to be that kind of guy, that Bible thumper. We have to understand, Acts 1.8 says that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witness. It's, it's a, a, a very simple, <laughs> kiddie kind of song, but it's good theology, when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, we're a light. And this little light of mine, we're called to let that shine. So yeah, it's a kiddie song, but it's good theology. And that's where Jesus was talking about, yeah, you're a light. Don't put a basket over your light. Let your light shine. Amp that up. See how bright you can live, not how dim you can get your lamp to be and still be called a Christian. Other ways you can say that is, a lot of times I'd get a question as a youth pastor, and, and the idea is, how close to sin can I live without just falling off? No, wrong question. How holy can we live? That's the question that we need to have on us. We need that kind of power. We need that kind of passion for it. There was an old cat back in, I think, the uh, 1800s that I like named John Wesley. He started the whole Methodist movement uh, Methodist churches, and if you look at their symbol, it's a cross with a fire on it because he wanted people to see the passion and a move of the Holy Spirit in his churches. I won't comment anything past that, but I love his quote. Light yourself on fire with passion and people will come from miles to watch you burn. They've literally already been burning Christians for centuries. Why are we trying to put it out? That we are called to light ourselves on fire with passion of the Holy Spirit, passion for the word of God, passion to be a voice of grace and truth and mercy and love. Why are we trying to dampen this? Why are we trying to turn our lamp down? Why are we running around on empty when we have access to the Holy Spirit? So let that theology a little bit. God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that when we surrender, submit our lives to him, he indwells us permanently. That it's not just power. We have God himself living in and through us. Why are we walking around still acting like the world? Shouldn't we not look, act, be a little bit different because God is within us? That he saw something in us to say, you know what? I'm gonna work. I can work through these people. If they would just surrender and submit their lives to me, if they would just light themselves on fire with passion for the gospel, man, people are gonna watch them. But you can't burn without oil. Is there oil in your vessel? Are you being filled with the Holy Spirit? Are you being led by the Holy Spirit? Or are you quenching the Holy Spirit? Are you 
grieving the Holy Spirit. Because those are the four commands that we're given in Scripture. And how do we respond to the Holy Spirit? We can be filled, we can be led, or we can quench him. And we can grieve him. Are you being led by the Holy Spirit? When the master comes back, would he look at you, would he look at us as a church and say, that's exactly what I asked you to do? Because we have opportunity to be the hands and the feet of Christ in our world. We got an opportunity to show the grace and the love and the hope that we have in Christ. We have an opportunity to invite people into an eternal relationship with God. makes all of our other concerns a little bit puny in comparison. But are you living full of the Holy Spirit, being led by him? If not, why not? Do you not understand the access that you have to God himself, that he wants to move in and through you? Father, we love you. We trust you. We just thank you, Lord. Thank you for an opportunity to dig deep into your word. We even need your Holy Spirit to understand fully your word. So lead and guide our lives. Light us on fire for passion for you, Lord. Let us be that light, burning bright. Because this world's broken and it is dark but you have chosen to reveal yourself to this world in and through us. We surrender and submit our lives to you. We ask for a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit upon us that today, this week, we would live for you and we would come back next week and be filled again and we would boldly approach your throne to be filled again with your Holy Spirit, Lord. So kindle afresh that gift. Fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. Lead and guide us. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. amen.